Last time we witnessed Simon Peter being used of the Lord to open the gospel door of the Gentiles. Huge historic moment in the life of the church when the gospel went to the Gentiles. And, and we should all in here, except for Mike Stewart back there, be grateful because he's Jewish. But the rest of us are lowly Gentiles. And because God opened the door of the Gentiles, we've all been blessed. Can I have an amen? Amen. amen. Aren't you glad that he came to us? Now, we're going to cover two chapters tonight. Chapter 11 opens with Peter coming under criticism. Can you imagine a man of God being criticized? <laughs> For fellowshipping with Gentiles. And so let's start reading in Acts 11, 1 through 3. Acts chapter 11, 1 through 3. Now, the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, meaning Jewish men, contended with him, saying, gasp. Now, I put that in there, gasp. You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. What, what are you thinking, Peter? We don't do that. Well, here we have again the kind of discrimination that Peter had already been delivered from, and they were shortly to follow, because you can't discriminate based on skin or race and be blessed of God. Can I say that again? You can't discriminate based on skin or, 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 or anything, you know, financial pedigree, uh, financial status, none, nothing like that. You can't discriminate and be blessed by God. I want black, white, yellow, red, brown. I want blue hair, pink hair, wild hair, tame hair. Weird-looking people, normal-looking people, I want them all in our church. Amen? Because that's what heaven's going to look like. I hate to break it to you. Now, so they're, they're discriminating. And it was the racial wall that was so tall back in that day between Jew and Gentile. And Peter answers with a testimony. Here's his testimony. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, hey, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and I fell into a trance, and I saw a vision. An object descended like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. And when I observed it intently and considered, I looked and saw four-footed animals of the earth, and I saw wild beasts and creeping things and birds of the air. Now, what he's saying is everything the Old Testament forbade us from eating. Verse 7, I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, No, Lord, for nothing uncommon or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven. And I want us to all read this verse again, can we? What God has cleansed, you must not call common. If God has forgiven somebody, you cannot look down on them. They are as washed in the blood as you are. Amen? Now, verse 10, this was done three times, and all were drawn back up into heaven. <clears throat> and at that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. And then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. And moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. 
And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Now he's telling these discriminating Jewish men this testimony. And there was no getting past Peter's testimony. The men who had criticized him could only agree with what God had done. Verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent. You know, when God really talks, it shuts people up. Amen? And they glorified God. Now look at how quickly they switched. They glorified God, saying, then God also has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, God changes people. And here were very prejudiced men against Gentile people. And they are delivered in a heartbeat by a testimony. They are set free. And now they no longer see Jew and Gentile. They see we are one in the blood of Jesus. And I want all of you to know tonight that uh, we have a lot of different backgrounds here, a lot of different races here, a lot of different financial levels here and educational backgrounds. But you know what? We are one in Christ. And when God looks at this church, he only sees one kind of person, redeemed. That's it, redeemed. So that's a great lesson. I love that part of this story because God just just pulled prejudice out of them and set them free. Now, Remember that when Stephen was martyred, a great shaking came upon the church with a vicious spirit of persecution unleashed against them, causing them to scatter everywhere preaching as they went. And we saw back when we covered this that this was God's will. The Lord Jesus had told them, you're going to go to Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. But folks, they stayed in Jerusalem, and they didn't do that. So God allowed in his providence persecution to come and it blew them out of there and sent them where they should have gone in the first place. So the lesson is, if you don't want God blasting you out, obey him. (laughs) How many of you have experienced God knows how to get a fire underneath you? How many of you have seen he can get you out of your lazy boy? Amen? Amen. And how many of you have seen that he's more interested in your holiness than he is your comfort? So he he blew them out of Jerusalem. They went everywhere preaching. Now the narrative in Acts 11 picks up now on some of the results of this scattering and the subsequent preaching that took place every place that they went. The door having been opened to the Gentiles through Peter, the Holy Spirit now turns our focus to predominantly Gentile lands. Now look at verse 19. Those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, I want to take that last verse, 21, and I want to tell you, when you're a ministry, you want to know how the hand of the Lord is with you? When people are turning to Jesus and getting saved. Now, a lot of pastors may not think that way, but I do. 
because I cut my teeth on leading people to Jesus, sharing the gospel with groups, actually in jails first. And I learned how to draw the net. I learned how to give an invitation for people to receive the Lord. And here's the deal. I began to see, as I began to senior pastor, that if the hand of the Lord is with you, he's always wanting to draw people to himself to be saved. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. So we see these people virtually every week, except last Sunday, I didn't get a chance. But when we see people every week getting saved, do you know what that is? You're watching the work of God, the handiwork of God. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. So to me, every church ought to be having spiritual babies all the time. Do you agree with me? If you agree with me, say amen. amen. I mean, somebody reached you, and how many of you are glad somebody got to you? There you go. Just because we're a church doesn't mean we're supposed to be in this religious bubble that there, there's us over here in our bubble and them over there in the world and never do the twain meet. No. We're to go out into the highways and the byways and compel them to come in and invite them to the feast. And so I'm so happy that every week there's lost people in our church. I don't know how they find it. I guess you bring them. They hear about it. They hear me on the radio. I don't know what it is, but they come. And every week we're having first time conversions. And that's what was happening with them. The hand of the Lord was with them. And because the hand of the Lord was with them, a great number believed and turned to the Lord. I'm looking forward to the day that on, sun, on Sundays when we have church, that you are bringing into the altar people you led to Christ that week. And they're already saved. They just need to have a church home. I'm looking forward to that day. You say, oh, Jeff, I work all week. I don't have time. Oh, yeah, you have time. You have time. You have time. You can at least go out and hand out one of those Easter cards. Now, what I love to note here is that in attacking the early church with persecution, Satan overplayed his hand, which he often does. You know when the worst time was Satan overplayed his hand? When he led the mob to crucify Jesus. Oh, he overplayed his hand. Because in leading the mob to crucify Jesus, Satan committed suicide. Amen? Because Jesus died for our sins and then he got up again. And it's been Satan's worst nightmare ever since. Amen. Now, by scattering the burning coals of Christian witness, he made it possible for fresh fires of testimony to spring up elsewhere. So when he, when he persecuted the church, they went everywhere red hot for Jesus and preaching the gospel. And, he law, and Satan lost more and more souls. Now, multitudes of Gentiles are now being swept in to the kingdom of God. When the Jerusalem church hears about it, they send a very quality man named Barnabas to check it all out. Verse 22. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, the mother church. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Now, when he had come and seen the grace of God, he was glad 
And he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. Now it gives us a little biographical sketch of Barnabas. Here we go. Verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. If those three things can be said about you and me, we do well. That we are a good Christian, full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. That's a great person. And here, here we go again. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Do you see how when God's with somebody and God is really moving, people are getting saved everywhere? Do you see that, church? Are you catching that? The church is not just a bless me club. Okay. Now, Barnabas was the kind of guy you want as a friend. I would like to take Barnabas on vacation with me. I wouldn't want to take Paul with me. Paul's too serious. He would have judged everything I did. Hey, Paul, let's go wind sail. Wind sail? I'd rather go win souls for Christ on the beach. You know, I mean, he was serious. But I would have loved to take Simon Peter on vacation with me. And Barnabas too. Hey, let's go. We'll have a good time. I think they could do it. Now, I want you to notice about Barnabas. He wasn't jealous of what had taken place outside his own local church. He could have said, well, harumph, Uh, this should be happening out of the Jerusalem church. But he didn't. He went all the way to Antioch and saw God moving and all these souls being saved. What was his reaction? He rejoiced at the great harvest of souls. And he didn't care at all that they were Gentiles. Now, notice also what his message was to them, because I want us to really catch this tonight. That they should, read it with me, with purpose of heart, continue with the Lord. Now, I want to pluck this out and look at it for a minute because I want all of you and, and me right there with you to do this. That with purpose of heart, we would continue with the Lord. Those of you that are newer in Jesus here, your newborns, your new Christians, I want to speak this over you. That with purpose of heart, you would continue with the Lord. Now, the word purpose here is prothesis. That's the Greek word, prothesis, which means a setting forth. And it's from a root word meaning to exhibit. We get prosthesis and prosthetic from this Greek word. Uh, In the Bible, let me give you an example of how it was used. Prothesis was used in relation to the showbread that was displayed on the table in the tabernacle. Now, here's what would happen. Once a week, the priests, when the temple was there, the priests were required to take 12 loaves of bread, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, and put them on the table before God, uh, each in its proper place. Can you say something with me? God is organized. Do you believe that? See, there are some people that think, if you're organized, you can't be flowing in the Holy Spirit. But I want to tell you, if you're flowing in the Holy Spirit, you will be organized. Everything, these 12 loaves were each put in their proper place. And at the end of the week, the bread was replaced and the loaves 
uh, that were removed were ceremonially eaten by the priest. So the priest got to eat these 12 loaves of bread uh, that were being replaced. And the point is this, that that in all of this, there was a deliberate planned purpose. They had a purpose of heart. We're going to do what God said right down to the T. So here's what Barnabas was telling these, these new Christians. He's saying, with purpose of heart, you should cleave to the Lord, meaning I want you to be deliberate and purposeful about your decision for Christ. I want you to be serious about what you've done. I don't want you to take your conversion flippantly. I don't want your walk with him just to be part of your life. Like you've got a pie divided into six slices and one of the six is your Christian life. No. Hey, listen, Jesus intends to be the whole pie. You put him first. And isn't it funny when you put him first how everything else starts coming together? I said, isn't it funny how when you put him first, everything starts coming together. People will come to me uh, from time to time in huge messes. Just, just have made some terrible decisions. Their lives are a mess. They don't know what to do. They're at the bottom. All kinds of consequences are pouring in on them. And they come to me and they say, Pastor Jeff, what do I do? I've made such a mess of things. And I'm like a broken record. I only have one initial response. I say, start seeking first the kingdom of God. And his way of doing things. Get back to the basics. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You go back to the basics. And you put him first. Because how'd you get in the mess you got in? Because you weren't putting him first. Have you ever, have you seen that when you don't put him first and you start following your own heart, you yourself are your own worst enemy and you will get yourself in all the trouble you can stand? But if you notice when you put him first, He takes this area of your life, your finances, and then over here, your relationships, and then over here, your vision for the future, and then over here, your well-being, and he starts grabbing all the various and sundry aspects of a fully-orbed life, and they start coming into place and coming under his blessing. But you got to start with him. So Barnabas is telling them, hey, with purpose of heart... Be intentional about it. Put him first. Mm. I just had a Holy Ghost rush. I know I'm right about this. You know, because I'm just quoting you the Bible. Now, this huge ingathering of Gentile souls soon became too big for Barnabas. He couldn't handle it. He felt completely overwhelmed with what God was doing. So he went looking for Saul to help him. Look at verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. He says, Saul, we got a major move of God going on here. But I got to tell you, friend, I'm overwhelmed. I can't handle it. I need help. And I love being in that position. So blessed, you can't handle it alone. Amen? So it was that, look, at Saul followed him. And it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. So church, look with me for a moment now. On the one hand, tons of people are being saved. But do they leave them to themselves? No. They bring in a master teacher. Nobody could teach like Saul. 
Nobody. Brilliant. Theologically trained. Filled with revelation. Unlike any man of his day. They bring a great teacher. And so it's the old picture of the net. Uh, The evangelist casts the net and brings the fish in. But somebody's got to clean them. Somebody has to clean the net. Somebody has to take the massive harvest and, and bring it into maturity. And this was Saul. So we're having a lot of people say, but we want them to stay here because we want to get them upstairs. We want to get them into the upper room. We want to get them into the new classrooms. We want them to learn how to walk with God. How to, with purpose of heart, cleave to the Lord. And so they're teaching a great many people. They're taking care of the harvest. And only Saul could bring to the table what was needed to harness this incredible move of the Spirit and bring stability, soundness, practical Christian teaching to this exploding church. And interestingly, verse 26 lets us in on a little something. It says, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That's where the name was first coined. Now, Christians was at first a nickname, maybe even really a derogatory one. That, that's one of those Christians. But here's the deal. It was so appropriate because most likely the name was derived from Christos, the Greek form of the title Messiah. So when somebody calls you a Christian, they're associating you with Christos, the Messiah. And that's good for me. It's good enough for me. You want to associate me with the Messiah? Go right ahead. You want to say it derogatorily? I don't care. Isn't that cool? So everybody say Christian. Isn't it a pretty name? So it doesn't matter how it came about. It's totally fitting, and it's a beautiful uh, title for followers of Jesus. But now, folks, a change in mood comes. The joyous report of an exploding harvest is interrupted by a somber prophecy. Verse 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, I must pause here because I want to clarify something for you. There is generally a difference between Old Testament and New Testament prophets. And let me tell you what it is. Old Testament prophets generally foretold. They foretold future events that had not come yet. But New Testament prophets generally did not foretell they, well, yes, they, I'm all messed up. They, they did not tell the future, they spoke truth. And that came in the form of practical Christian teaching. So they were more forth-telling than telling the future. Do you understand what I'm saying? So... In this case, we have a group of prophets moving in the same kind of prophecy as did the Old Testament prophets. They are foretelling future events, not just speaking truth. Let me give you an example. When I preach on Sunday, in the the pure sense of the New Testament word for prophet, I'm prophesying. I'm declaring truth. And that is prophesying. Really, in a way, I'm teaching, but I'm also prophesying right now. I'm telling you truth. I'm sharing the word with you. Um, I'm not telling you what is coming in the future, 
but I am speaking truth to you, and that's prophesying. The Old Testament prophets would predict things centuries yet to come, and that's an amazing thing. So, but here, in this particular instance, we have a group of prophets moving like Old Testament prophets did. They are foretellers, not forthtellers. They are foretellers. I'm telling forth, but I'm not foretelling. That's future. You got it? And look what he said, verse 28. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, that's heavy. He stands up in the middle of the church, and he says, the Spirit of God is moving on me, and the Spirit of God is telling me that a great famine is coming. And they believed him, and they believed the Lord, and they acted on it. This prophecy was delivered to give the church time to prepare for this approaching famine, which they did. Verse 29, then the disciples, believing the word of the Lord, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea, and this they also did. And they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now here's what we know looking back. We know from history that the famine hit, and it hit Judea severely. It was accurate. And the Antioch Christians responded by giving liberally into a relief fund. And by the way, this is the very first time you find one church taking up money for another church. First time it's mentioned in the Bible. But here's what I want us to walk away with tonight. In our day, can can somebody be moved on by the Holy Spirit and, and predict something future? Yes, they can. For the most part, New Testament prophecy is forthtelling, not foretelling. It's foretelling spiritual truth. But it can happen. I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to throw out a name here. I rarely do this, rarely. But it's, since it's positive, I'm going to do it. I think one of the closest things to a real prophet in our day had to be David Wilkerson. I mean, he came out in 1972 with what he called the vision. It was a vision he had. And it was very extensive. And I remember listening to the whole thing. And just it was just so powerful. He, he spoke it at a, at a large convention. He was trembling. He said, when this came upon me, it came upon me in my bedroom, and it took me to the floor, and I saw certain things coming to America. And he said, I saw a flood of pornographic filth that is going to totally pollute the land of America. He said, what I saw coming is going to make, and I hate to say the name, I'm not going to name the magazines, I'm not going to name them, the first ones that we would consider now tame, though they were pornographic, but they were tame. He said, it's going to make them look like playtime. He said, I see a venereal disease coming upon this world for which there is no cure and it will be deadly. He started naming things he saw. Well, we know AIDS came eight or nine years later. 
I wish I had a tape of it and I could let you hear it because I, I really, I feel that, that okay about it. It was so accurate. And I saw one after another, after another of the things he said come to pass. Now I believe he's real. I think a lot of what passes for prophecy is hot air and too much pizza. I'm sorry. I've been around too long. You know, I've been in churches where if there weren't three prophecies in every service, then you you didn't have church. And it forced people to say things that were not God. I'm so careful to say, if I say something is from God, that it's from God. But I've heard nutty stuff, crazy stuff, loopy stuff, lunatic stuff come out in the name of the Lord. I've even heard God use bad English, so-called God. But can it be real? You bet. Most New Testament prophecy is forthtelling, declaring scriptural truth, not foretelling, declaring the future. But it can happen. Does that help you all? All right, now, the famine hit Judea severely. And Saul and Barnabas are tapped to carry the money to Jerusalem to hand it over to the elders for distribution. And they, they take this money and they bring relief uh, to the brethren who are trying to weather this famine. Now, as chapter 12 begins, we find a vicious persecution unleashed against the mother church in Jerusalem, where James, whose brother was John was the chief leader. Look at verse 1, chapter 12. Now, about that time, Herod, the king, stretched out his hand to to harass some from the church. And look what he did in verse 2. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, folks, it's getting serious in the early church. James and John were the sons of Zebedee, and they were among the Lord's uh, first disciples. You remember Jesus walking along the seashore and calling James and John? And they were fishermen. He called them out. Herod gets a demonic inspiration to kill this man. And so here's the deal. This murder of James makes him the first of the 12 apostles to be martyred. He's the first of 11. All 12 were not. 11 of 12 were. John's the only apostle who was not martyred. He lived to a ripe old age, somewhere in his 90s. But the other 11 were brutally murdered over time. And Jesus had prepared them for that. He had told them this would happen. Now, Herod was a typical politician. He did what he did for a cheap and despicable political reason to curry favor with his Jewish subjects. We'd be amazed. If we could see how many times politicians in Washington, they're not serving us, they're serving the dollar, they're serving interest groups, they're, 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 they're trying to please somebody who's, who's scratching their back as well, and they're not serving American people. That's sort of, that's, that's the underbelly of politics. And there's nothing new under the sun. Herod was doing the same thing. He said, I, want, I, need, to, I need to gain some points with the Jews, so I'm going to kill the leader of this renegade religious group called Christians. So he went for the jugular, and he killed James. Look at verse 3. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Uh-oh, he's going for the two top men. 
Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested him, he put Peter in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers. Now, let me ask you a question tonight. Why in the world did he need four squads of soldiers for one man? Four squads of soldiers for one man. I mean, the guy's in prison, locked behind bars. Why do you need four squads of soldiers? I'm going to tell you why. He remembered what happened with Jesus. And he was thinking, no way I'm losing this one. Well, well, let's read on. Four squads of soldiers to keep him in, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So enjoying the bump in the poles that it gave him, Herod now turns his evil eye on Peter. Yet while James' homegoing was allowed of the Lord, it was not Peter's time. Let's read verse 5. This is such a, I love this. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer. Everybody say constant prayer. Was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, it was 1159.59. That night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Four squads of them. Verse 7, now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him. And a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and said, get up, son. I'm sorry, I didn't read that right. <laughs> said, raised him up saying, arise quickly. And look what happened. Read it with me. His chains fell off his hands. Jesus always breaks chains. <laughs> and then the angel said to him, gird yourself, tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel was real, thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, when they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, read the next part with me, which opened to them of its own accord. Say with me, when God wants you out, you're coming out. Now chains are falling off. Doors are swinging open. It's like Steven Spielberg, but it's real. Okay? It's better. Now, um, and they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Now, let me give you a fact of life tonight. When it is God's time for you to go, nothing can save your life. When it isn't God's time for you to go, nothing can take your life. Because do you see here that James, God allowed James to be taken home. He allowed Stephen to be taken home. But it wasn't Peter's time. And so God did not allow him to be taken home. Because Herod was going to kill him. Clearly God wasn't finished with Peter and supernaturally delivered him from Herod's evil intent. Now next, we really do have a bit of humor. The very church praying for his deliverance can't believe their prayers are answered. Look at verse 11. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So verse 12, So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Now get this. They, the ones on the inside are praying for him to be released. They're having a prayer session, crying out to God for Peter to be set free. Now, Peter has been set free, and he's knocking on the door. 
And as he knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer, verse 14, when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate. She so freaked out, she didn't even think to open and let him in. Now look, it says, but she ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. Now here's all these men of faith and power for the hour. They're praying, Lord, set Peter free. She comes running in and says, he's at the door. They say, you're nuts. (laughs) I want you to know, folks, that you don't have to have perfect faith to pray. Isn't that good news? How many of you have often said, seriously, Lord, I believe, please help my unbelief. You don't, because these people clearly did not have perfect faith. They don't even believe their prayer has been answered. She kept insisting that it was so. So they said, well, it's his angel. Now, Peter, and he's out there. Come on, guys, let me in. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Wouldn't you like to have a prayer answer that is so heavy you can't believe it? Here's the lesson. If God answers your prayer, believe it so you can receive it. Their answer is at the door. They don't let him in. Their answer is at the door. I wonder how many answers are at your door. I wonder how many times God has come to me with an answer, and I was so caught up in my own stuff that I didn't realize he'd answered a prayer, and I didn't let it in. See, God can answer, but you've got to let the answer in. You've got to receive what God has done. Somebody in here needs that tonight because you've been praying for something. Maybe somebody watching by streaming video. You've been praying for something, and and you're not hearing Peter at the door. Pull your head out of your own problems and look around. God may have answered you. Verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Now, if if you caught it, you're wondering, how can you go tell James something when James is martyred? Right? The James mentioned here is not the martyred James. But it was James, the Lord's half-brother, who had apparently now assumed leadership of the Jerusalem church. Jesus didn't have any full brothers because nobody was begotten of God like he was. But he had half-brothers. James was one of them. And that James took the place of the martyred James. But you know what? I found this James, the Lord's half-brother, would also be martyred in A.D. 61 by Annas the high priest. And there were many who believed in that time that the destruction of Jerusalem that happened nine years later in 70 AD was the result of the fact that James, the Lord's half-brother, was no longer there to pray for the peace of the city. I don't know, but that's what some believed. Now, I love what happens next, verse 18. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir I can see Herod. You have got to be kidding me. Four squadrons of soldiers and the prison door is locked and it's happened again? No small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, uh uh-oh, 
He examined the guards. That means he whipped them and commanded they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now, again, I point out that until your time comes, no devil in hell, no wicked heart of man, no diabolical scheme hatched against you can take you out. And for those who attack God's people, oh my, there are grim consequences as we're about to read. Look at verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, catch this, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave a political speech. It says an oration, but it was a political speech to them. And the people kept shouting. What did they shout? The voice of a God and not of a man. What are they doing? They're kissing up to him. But watch this, verse 23. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him. Why, everybody? Because he did not give glory to God. The next part is hard to read, but I'm going to read it. He was eaten by worms and died. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a way I want to go. Now, it's a dangerous thing. Here's the lesson with what happened with Herod. It's a dangerous thing to promote yourself, to exalt yourself. Even worse, take the glory meant for God unto yourself. And this is a real danger. This is a danger for all kinds of people. When you are successful, it's very easy to allow people to butter you up, kiss up to you, constantly uh, compliment you and, and flatter you. And you know the Proverbs tell us that flattery works ruin? Flattery is ruinous. Flattery is when you're complimenting somebody for something they had nothing to do with. Praise is when you are congratulating somebody for something they did. And you're, there's nothing wrong with giving a great big attaboy to somebody. But when you didn't have anything to do with it, when God did it, and you take credit, then you're in danger. Now, here's Herod up there. He's in purple. He's arrayed in his purple robe and his purple garb. He's got the crown on his head, and he's looking out at these people. He's king. He's, he's Herod, the king. And they, they shout out, you sound like a god. And you know what he did? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's a danger in the church when the anointing of the Spirit comes upon a place. It's a danger when God starts moving and there is success in ministry to take the credit yourself. Years ago, uh, years ago, I've been pastoring a long time. I used to have a chair on the stage where I would sit during worship and praise and, and it sort of put me up there and I would sit in this chair and I had a couple of them and my associates would, would sit with me and we're on these chairs and, and it put us kind of above the people in a way, looking back. And 
One day I just decided, what am I doing? I'm not above them. And so there's a reason I sit over here with all of you. I'm not going to promote Jeff. But here's the deal. If I started thinking this was due to me, you're in trouble and so am I. If I start promoting myself, I'm afraid of it. Now, I want respect. I should have respect because of the position God's put me in. You're respecting him when you respect a position he gives somebody. But, but do I want... Listen, that mule... This Sunday is Palm Sunday. That mule that carried Jesus into Jerusalem for the first Palm Sunday, what would you think about the mule if he started saying to himself with all those palm leaves being thrown down in front of him and all the hosannas, if he started strutting and thinking about himself like this, uh-huh, it's all about me. No, no, what were, they, what were they praising? The one who was riding him into the city. See, I've been called to bring Jesus into the city, but none of the hosannas are for me. I'm God's mule. I don't mind saying it. And so are you. We're sheep. Bah, we're stupid. We need to be led. I don't care if your IQ is 180. Left to yourself, you're going to get in all kinds of trouble. But there are pastors who get caught up in this. Self-promotion. It's all about them. If you listen to them, all the personal pronouns constantly. I, me, myself. Watch it. Because Herod said, I'll receive that. And watch this. Herod was being watched by heaven, and he didn't know it. He crossed the hidden boundary known only by God, and God acted. Do you know that it was only five days after he murdered an apostle of the Lamb of God, Herod was smitten by heaven as he stood on his feet. Don't go messing with God's people. You're going to answer sooner or later. Now we close with verse 24. The word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now next week we're going to talk about Paul the pioneer. Let's stand together, can we? How many of you are glad you came to church tonight? Amen. Amen. Say with me, it's not about me. It's all about him. Do you believe that? Let's say it again. It's not about me. It's all about him.